Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and uh, really glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. I hope you feel welcomed uh, here. Thanks for deciding to be with us. Uh, many of our women are away this morning. We've had our women's retreat all weekend in Riceville Beach, around 70 women at, at, uh, at the beach, uh, leaning into and learning about renewal. And uh, so I know uh, we're looking forward to having them back and let, hopefully praying that what uh, God's done in their midst is will bleed into and impact the rest of our body. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series that we've been in for a number of months now in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a book that Herman Melville called the truest of all books. It is the very honest biographical account of a man who is trying to make sense of humanity in a world of vanity. He's trying to help us examine our humanity, our lives here in a world filled with many things that we chase for meaning, pleasure, sex, power, money. And the preacher tells us over and over and over that they leave us wanting, that it is vanity, it's smoke. These things are elusive and any satisfaction that we might gain from the thing that we're chasing does not last. And so we're reading and studying Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us, it's really is like receiving a constant cup of cold water in the face. We're being woken up to the realities of life under the sun. We're being forced to be honest about the real world in which we live. And the preacher does not allow for a cotton candy Christianity, this sappy, sweet, a little bit naive Christianity where we slap some Christian cliches upon our life and our circumstances. This morning in particular, he throws a very cup, uh, cold cup of water in our faces. And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. And I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as we do every week to give attention to the reading of God's word. This is God's word to us this morning. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to, the, to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. If you will pray with me. Lord, you are the living God who created and recreates. You sustain and renew and strengthen, and we need to hear from you this morning. We need you to take your word and by your Holy Spirit, speak it into our spirit. 
that we might be transformed, that our minds might be illumined, our hearts softened, our, our lives transformed and changed because you've spoken to us. And so I pray that you would remove me, the preacher, and that Christ, you would be exalted, that you would preach to us, that we would hear from you, that you would be pleased that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Would you speak to us? We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, I am mindful that with 100% certainty, someone's life has been rocked in the past week. In a group our size, someone's life has been turned upside down in the past seven days. Most of us in one or more moments of our lives experience some type of catastrophic loss where it feels like our lives are turned upside down. An unexpected family member dies, a close friend dies, a spouse has an affair. We experience the pain of a breakup or the pain of a divorce. Our bank account goes empty and we wonder if we will be able to pay the bills. A family member is diagnosed with cancer Perhaps you are diagnosed with cancer. Your hopes and dreams of getting into that grad school or that residency program or fellowship, they're shattered. A shakeup at work happens and you find yourself unemployed. A child is born with a medical condition that you're going to have to monitor for their entire life. A loyal friend betrays you. Infertility is difficult. Miscarriage is devastating. Broken relationships make you lonely. Memory loss is scary. Mental illness, frightening. So what do we do when the life we thought was in our control blows up? What do you do when the plans you made for your life are disrupted? There are really two choices. We can either choose to escape the pains and the realities of our life, this uncontrollable life, or we can embrace our human limitations and allow it to lead us to live with godly wisdom. Choosing escape, it is the choice to flee reality. It is to numb the pain in order to avoid our problems. Fleeing reality is the very thing the preacher is charging to us to avoid in this whole book. He's trying to wake us up to reality. But I have to say that fleeing reality is one of the things that Christians can be really good at. When tragedies strike or our lives blow up, we experience some major loss. Christians can be really good at avoiding reality by band-aiding the pain with Christian slogans, Christian one-liners, like let go and let God. Or we'll quote the Bible verse, God works all things together for our good. And I'm not saying that verse in Romans isn't true. It's true. I'm just saying that many Christians avoid the pain of the real world by offering up cliches to try to short circuit our pain. And what results in doing so is very emotionally unhealthy Christians. And Christians can be some of the most unhealthy people because of this tendency to escape by avoiding the pain of the real world. Churches. Churches can be filled with what Pete Scazzaro calls leaking Christians. People who have not wrestled with God and been healed by God in their real emotions, particularly in the emotion of pain, grief, and loss. And as a result, their emotional unhealth 
spills out. It leaks out onto other people and other circumstances. Leaking Christians can look to other people, other circumstances, and demand that that dating partner, that spouse, that job, that church take away the loneliness felt in the midst of pain. It's one way we escape. Another way that we escape, this is the primary method within our cultural moment now, is addiction. And when I say addiction, I mean a continual pattern expressed in one's life as a way to escape and numb real emotions. And this can be seen in a number of things. Watching TV, constant busyness, pornography, alcohol, pills, overeating, technology. It can be anything we choose that allows us to avoid pain. Escape is one option that we have when our lives blow up and we realize that we're not in control like we thought we were. But our passage this morning is leading us to choose the other option, which is embrace. To embrace our human limits so that we might live with godly wisdom. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the Bible's wisdom books. The whole book is teaching us how to live with wisdom in this world. And King Solomon was asked by God, if, if you could receive one thing from me, Solomon, what would it be? And Solomon asked for wisdom, and he was commended by God. If you could have one thing from God, would you ask for wisdom? He was commended by God to ask for wisdom. And so what is wisdom? Wisdom for the Christian is knowing how to navigate the real world with the mind and heart of Christ. Let me say that again. Wisdom for the Christian is knowing how to navigate the real world with the mind and the heart of Christ. So the Bible doesn't give clear directions on should you marry this person or not marry this person? Should you take this job or not take this job? Those are wisdom questions. And wisdom's not intellect. It's not IQ. I know some really smart people who are unwise. Wisdom's not morality either because I know some really good people who are unwise. Wisdom includes thinking and morality, but it's beyond that. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The end of Ecclesiastes says the whole duty of humanity is to fear God and keep his commands. To fear the Lord, it is to know your place. It's to know your place. It's what we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Know your place. Knowing our place is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is knowing our place so that we might be able to navigate the world with the mind and heart of Christ. So how can we know if we're living in this world, knowing our place, thus walking in wisdom? By embracing our human limitations. By embracing our human limits. Here's my first point. We're to embrace that we are limited by death. We see this in verses one through six. I don't know if you've ever heard of YG2D. Have you heard of YG2D? YG2D stands for you are going to die. YG2D started out as an open mic night in San Francisco, California, turned into a movement and is now a 501c3 nonprofit, which states its mission like this, that we are a nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. 
YG2D. This movement is tapping into Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. How in the world is the day of death better than the day of birth? It's not better in the sense of more fun or more enjoyable, but it is better in the sense of more profitable. It is a better teacher on how we are to live wisely under the sun. There was an ancient Roman practice called memento mori. Memento mori is what happened when there was a Roman military triumph. The general would be riding in his chariot and the army marching back into the city and the general would have his aide whispering in his ear as the applause and the roar of the crowd swelled, memento mori. Memento mori. Remember, thou art mortal. Remember, you will die. The general asked for this, the peak of celebration, to help him keep perspective so that he would get less carried away in victory. Because death has a way to snap us back into focus. When we experience loss through death, we are reminded we too will die. Everybody in here can be certain of this one thing, YG2D. You are going to die. This past week, I had multiple unplanned conversations with staff in our church, leaders in our church, about the death of a loved one, really painful losses. And I was reminded in, in one conversation about the death of one of my best friends, Mitch Drew, who was killed by a car at the age of 26, became a Christian in college, and he was a phenomenal man, and life taken when he was 26. And at Mitch's funeral, I, I, I think I never saw as clear before that things at Mitch's funeral just kind of snapped into focus. What really mattered were clear. And the preacher is telling us that the one who embraces that we are limited in this life by death will enter the house of mourning rather than the house of folly, that they will be able to sit at a funeral and really embrace death and will mourn and in their mourning become wise. But the person who sits at a funeral in mourning knows that the coffin is a better teacher than the crib that the coffin leads us to think more deeply about our own life and ask what will be said about me on the day of my death? Will it be said of me that this person loved college basketball or loved college football, they enjoyed having a good time? Or will there be deeper things said about my character and my soul? Embracing our day of death forces us to verse two, lay it to heart. And as a result, become more deep in our soul and in our character and become more wise in this life. Whereas the fool sits at the funeral and thinks about how quickly it's going to end, thinks about what's happening outside, the fool laughs off the pains of loss in this life. And the denial of death leads to a life of superficiality. It is a life of avoiding rather than embracing the limits of death. The denial of death leads us to what Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, called immortality projects. Immortality projects, these things that we throw ourselves into, thinking that if we participate in them, it'll give us lasting worth. And so we throw ourselves into romance or to art or to our career or to our physical health or to social causes or to our children's future. Immortality projects are our vain efforts to save our lives in this life under the sun. 
Embracing the limits of death leads us to deeper and wiser living because it orients us to what really matters. Let me add that letting the coffin be our teacher also leads to true joy. Look at verse 3. It says, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. It's a reference to true joy, not opioid superficial joy, which is escapism. True joy rises from ashes. True joy comes out of embracing limits and loss. When Mitch Drew died in 2003, it was painful. Deep mourning and sadness. But I also remembered that day being a day of great joy. Sitting around with close friends after the funeral, experiencing true laughter, true friendship. The reception, the food never tasted so good. Because death has a way to snap everything into perspective. And in our mourning, out of the ashes came real joy. And in that moment, we relished each other. We relished our friendships. We even enjoyed the food. So if you can live embracing the limits of death, you will also live on the heights of joy. So memento mori. Remember, you will die. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It is the beginning of the Christian season called Lent. It is a time for us to remember that we are mortal, that from dust we were born and dust we shall return. I'd encourage all of you to come. If you've never been, I'd I'd love for it to be your first. It is one of the most practical ways every year that Christ Central Church memento mores together. Embodying Ash Wednesday in Lent allows us to have joy that rises from the ashes so that we can celebrate on Easter morning. Embracing the limits of death allows us to walk in this life with wisdom. Here's my last point. Walking in wisdom, we need to embrace the limits of wisdom. Embrace the limits of wisdom. We see this in verses 7 through 14. In in verse 7, it starts this kind of four quick proverbs in succession. Verse 7, the bribe corrupts the heart. Be wise about the power of money. Don't be be the kind of person that can be bought with money. Verse 8, a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Patience is a virtue. Don't Don't be impatient. Anything worthwhile takes time. Verse 9, don't be quick in your spirit. Anger lodges in the bosom of the fool. You're going to get frustrated in this life, so be aware of your temper. In verse 10, don't say why were former days better than these. Don't be overly nostalgic and think that the past is way better than the present. Nostalgia robs you of being in the present and trusting God's in control in the present. And a wise person is present with others They're present with God and they're present with themselves. I like the point that David Gibson makes. He says all four of these proverbs are variations on escapism. He says the extortion of money is a way of escaping responsibility. Impatience is a way of escaping reality and wishing things were different from the way than they really are. Anger is a way of escaping your inability to cope with things not being the way you want them. And nostalgia is a form of escapism by taking a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the present and looking to the future in faith. Wisdom comes from knowing God's in control. It comes from knowing your place. But verse 13 tells us that wisdom has its own limits too. Look at verse 13. It says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So the preacher is checking any of our overly wise perception of ourselves. 
any, any of our overly snobby theological assumptions of ourselves that think we have God figured out. And he says, we cannot straighten God out with our logic, even with our theology. There will come times in this life when our, our lives are so rocked and turned upside down that we will have no answer, no response. And left to our own devices, our own smarts, no matter how far we advance, we will never be able to completely figure out life under the sun. Pointedly, what he is saying is that true wisdom recognizes the limits of wisdom. If we are able to embrace the limits of our wisdom, it will keep us from becoming bitter and embittered by this life. Because the reality is sometimes the race is not to the swift. Sometimes the battle is not won by the strong. Sometimes the good person loses and the bad person wins. The whole book of Job is a wisdom book. It's this debate between Job and God. Job doesn't understand why his life has been turned upside down. How could he lose his whole family in death? How could all of his money and his possessions be taken away? How could his good health turn into bad health? And the end of the book of Job, it's the main point of the book. Job encounters the presence of God in his pain. And then he says in Job 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally learned his place. God is in heaven and he's on earth. And what appears crooked to humanity is straight to God and we may never understand it, but we submit ourselves to his control and to his goodness and to his love. Embracing the limits of our wisdom, it produces repentance in dust and ashes. It produces humility. The word humility comes from the Latin hummus, meaning of the earth, grounded on the earth. Humility. Knowing our place. God is in heaven. We are on earth. This will help us to embrace our limits and to walk in wisdom. Does it feel like your life has been blown up recently? If not, I promise it will at some point. We have two options when our worlds get turned upside down, to either escape or embrace our limits. We are limited by death. But as Christians, we need not fear death. By faith in Christ, we are forever accepted by the Father. We need not fear judgment, but rather experience the steadfast love of God that in Christ, Death loses its sting. Death holds no power. Christ has resurrection power, and we will live with him in this eternal dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so we can let death be our teacher. We can let it lead us to walk with depth and wisdom in this world of vanities. We can be active to memento mori. And we need to remember that he is God and we are not. And yes, we might increase in wisdom, and there are things we can know more truly, but we will never know all things fully. So we have to embrace our limits. And in doing so, we're ushered into a relationship with the living God who leads and guides and gives us the heart and the mind of Christ as we live here under the sun. We don't need to try to figure God out and, and put God in a box. He calls us into a relationship with himself to enjoy his presence, his love, his goodness, his grace, especially when we cannot understand why life is the way that it is. When we feel like our lives are upside down, 
He wants us to come to him, to know him, to know his love, to know that he's in control. And when we embrace our limits, we move from a life of me, all about me, which is seen in escapism or seen seen in a view of God that says, God, give me, God, give me, God, give me. We no longer numb ourselves to the pain of this world. We no longer become addicted to avoid the pain. We no longer live as leaking Christians who are hurling out that which has never been healed up by God. Rather, we become healed people who are in a loving communion with God, and he graciously transforms us into a deep, humble, wise people who follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would... Help us do the very things we resist, which is to embrace our limits, embrace our humanity. Lord, that, that's so hard for me. It's, I know it's hard for everyone. But when our, our lives get turned upside down, it's when we wake up to the reality that we're not in control like we thought we were. And so I pray that you would allow us to do that with more consistency, more rhythm, and not just in catastrophic loss, but in the day in and day out living in communion with you so that we could experience the joy that comes from knowing you, your grace and love that abounds. Lord, I pray that we would lean in more into our relationship with you and that we could be honest about life here on earth, that it is hard, it's confusing, but you are good and you're loving and you're always with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.